welcome to Lazarus Theatre Company's new podcast, Spotlight On, where we turn the spotlight on to reveal the people behind the scenes, those who make Lazarus work, the creatives, the artists, the process, the creation. Hello, I'm Ricky Dukes, the Artistic Director of Lazarus Theatre Company. And I'm Gavin harrington Edidra, producer of Lazarus Theatre Company. How's your week going, Gavin? It's going good. Um, I was just talking to our guest just before we started recording about um, how I'm really enjoying these trips down memory lane and, and talking about all the things that we've done in the last nearly 15 years um, and uh, kind of totaling up the number of productions that we've done. And I just said, like, how are we old enough to have done all this? Um, and then we kind of glossed over the fact that we actually are quite old. Um, but yeah, so I've, I've been really enjoying it. How about yourself? I was going to say, look in the mirror, you sentimental <laughs> sod. <laughs> um, yeah, fine, actually. Yes, of course, it's a big, big week for the podcast on because the Spotlight podcast on, Spotlight on podcast, because um, we're, we're recording four this week, aren't we? Because yeah. um, people's availability, it's all a bit mad, a bit crazy. But um, yes, some it does feel like spring's still in the air, though. It feels like there's quite a bit of optimism around, which is nice. Mm. Um, mm. You know, I'm still not entirely convinced by the roadmap, but, you know, I'm not going to drag my heels in. I'll do my bit. Let's try and get back to some sort of sense of something happening this summer. Hopefully mm. that's... We'll see how we go. We'll see yes, how we please. go. Eh? Yeah. We might be able to get back in a theatre at some point in our lifetime. Mm. Uh, Welcome, Misha. This week's uh, guest is Misha Colombo. Uh, we're talking to the wonderfully talented, multi-talented Misha Colombo, it says in my script. Lots of talented, <laughs> lots of multi. Um, Misha is an actor, writer, storyteller and voice artist based in the Southwest. And not only uh, all of that, but she's also a Lazarus associate artist. Uh, Misha's Lazarus journey began with a double bill of Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida and Coriolanus. That was under the banner of Our World at War, which plays as part of the Camden Fringe uh, Festival at the Tristan Bates Theatre in 2014. She then went on to be part of our ill-fated 2014 production of Henry V, which we'll talk about maybe, uh, that was cancelled due to my running on a bike with a sports car. <laughs> which might be the title of my autobiography, who knows. Uh, Misha was also part of our semi-staged reading of Polly by John Gay, and that was directed by Sarah Remus. Uh, it was then three years later when Misha returned to the stage with us as Prospero in our 2019 production of The Tempest. Um, as well as being a fantastic performer, ensemble member and company supporter, Misha has written and directed stage work, written poetry, and has even gone to the dark side into theatre management. Lots to talk about. Hello, Misha. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Spotlight On. It's quite warm in the spotlight, isn't it? Here we are. Here we are. Well, first of all, kick off and tell us, how are you? What's been going on during this period of lockdown? Um, I, I am well, thank you. Um, lockdown has been intense. It has mainly been around looking after my kids, um, but there have been some silver linings. I've, I've had some time to kind of be creative in ways that I hadn't anticipated. So yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. Good. And Thank tell you. us about these gorgeous boys of yours. You've, you're basically building an ensemble of your own. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to do my bit for the theatre world, you know. <laughs> um, they are six and three and just turned one. And they are very loud. 
I think it's probably a good way to describe what our house is like on a day to day. <laughs> no, they're, they're full of joy. It's good. I loved um I was when looking at sort of prepping for today I always remember the story I think it was Emil said to you about um wanting to give his clothes to the shark oh do yeah that? do you remember that story and I just thought gosh this creative little bee we've got to get him in got to get him in the storytelling is incredible <laughs> do you remember that story do you want to share I mean you don't want to share it with the audience you don't have to but something about being on a beach going oh, I want to take my clothes off and give them to the shark was that yeah it? just quite matter-of-factly I mean they're always coming up with this kind of stuff but I think it was something along the lines of like shall I, I think I'd like to go down to the beach mummy and take all my clothes off and then throw them into the water to feed to the shark and then go swimming can we do that or something like that you know <laughs> plus can I have a biscuit or something yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just fantastic isn't it you just sort of go yeah we've just missed that sort of childlike gaze on the world um Although, to be perfectly honest, you know, you hang around with a bunch of creatives enough. It's that same sort of unfettered way of thinking. So the two worlds are more similar than you might think. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's funny, though, isn't it? About One thing I've been quite conscious of during lockdown is I've been listening to spot podcasts and, and uh, interviews with people. There's something wonderful that um, one recording I was listening to where Emma Rice was talking about that when she goes on train journeys, she doesn't take any work to do on the train. She just looks out of the window. And I thought, and at the time, I thought, God, that's that's quite good, isn't it? We're, we're sort of all obsessing about well, what can we do? What can we do? We've got to be productive. We've got to be creative, you know, attempting to just sort of throw anything onto Zoom. And, um, and I thought, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Maybe I should just look out the window and sort of dream a bit. So I did. I sort of sat and <laughs> looked out the window and then sort of hadn't realised that the train, because I live next to a train station, the train had sort of paused before it came into the platform and all these people because it was the same level as uh, as my uh, lounge window all these people just staring at me just staring at the window and I thought I'm sure this isn't what Emma Rice had in mind but there we are um yeah dreaming it's great to dream and we've got to haven't we? we've got to sort of I always remember as a kid being told to grow up oh grow up and actually I sort of think oh no we need to tell people not to grow up you yeah know? kids don't please don't grow up like savor it and particularly people in the arts like let's not grow up let's be inventive and dreamlike and you know and I also think I mean this Gavin and I were just chatting about it just now but um looking back as well I have really enjoyed this lockdown I mean it's partly born out of the fact that you can't do anything so what you're going to do you're going to have a little sit and think about the fun things you have done but I found that really enjoyable in a way that I just don't normally do you know like remembering holidays I've been on or shows I've been in or that kind of stuff and it's nice to just not constantly move forward and think of the next and the next and the next but actually to just dwell on things a bit um so I yeah I kind of think I might do a bit more of that from now on one of my lockdown yeah. learnings almost having um allowing your brain the space to do that yeah we're, we're sometimes you just need that right we just need the space and a bit of time to be able to do that maybe exactly and process and and all of that stuff just slowing down a bit it's it's good for the soul I think yeah uh, and that's that's also been interesting about because I, I see what you mean about the uh, I hear you on the on the reminiscing I think there's also something about um just getting back into contact with people who you've shared these incredible things with particularly when you've been making a show and actually just realising you never really properly debrief on them. You never properly sort of 
conclude, you know, particularly when you're doing short runs, by the time you've got the thing open, you're then in the run and it's closed. Yeah. And uh, maybe yeah. sometimes we don't have the space or we don't take the time or maybe we're not allowed the time to sort of go, I can just bed into this thing. I can just appreciate what's happening rather than and it's got to yeah. open and, you know. And also appreciating kind of the process of, of making it as well as the final product, because it's so easy to just obsess and, and rightly so, because you, you want to make something that's that's good and that you're proud of. But there is also something about the process of having made that with other people that is of itself something to cherish. And um, we sort of forget about that bit, don't we? You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and shows that you feel the pressure it opens in three weeks rather than going, it opens in three weeks. Let's just breathe a bit, shall we? Should we just find out what this is? Yeah. Um, should we just explore what this might be? Um, I think it was um, when we chatted to Jamie, Jamie O'Neill and his podcast, I came up with the metaphor of rehearsals are a little bit like a mixing bowl and you're putting all the ingredients in. And when all those ingredients are great, um, you can really mix that up. And actually, certainly with our sort of work, you get into a place where a lot of the staging, a lot of the ideas are built on the play that you do at the beginning of the process. And when that mixing bowl might not be quite right or the ingredients aren't at the same point or, you know, maybe you've tried some different pepper that week or I don't know, I'm going to stop with the cooking analogy. <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, sometimes that's tricky and difficult. And, and, and actually the big, big realisation for me anyway has been we need to do way more workshopping. So let's do all of that stuff before you even enter a rehearsal room knowing you've got to do a show. Um, so you've got the freedom and the potential... Um, I don't know, the pressure might be off a little bit going, it's okay, we're going to just do a little run through at the end of the workshop, but that might or might not be what the production is. But don't worry, there's not going to be a preview audience. And so just have that space to sort of cocoon and play and explore. And then maybe, I don't know, this is probably something to try when we're back, I suppose. And then maybe when you go in the rehearsal, go, we've, we're all a bit more informed. We've all done the playing, we can build on that. But then you do need the pressure of the gas underneath you to go, okay, come on, start making some choices. So maybe it's trying to find a balance between the play and the exploration. And at some point you've got to light the hob because it's got to have, you've got to cook something. Yeah, that's interesting. And just kind of compartmentalise it a little bit. Mm. Yeah, just to fully explore those choices, I guess, fully explore what's the ramifications of that. Um, we'll come to Prospero, but, but just exploring the full element of what happens when Prospero's a woman and Miranda's a boy that dynamic change and actually I was thinking god did we ever really discuss that properly did we ever sort of debate that or actually do we just get in the room and go yeah it just is what it is and off we go and um maybe neither of those are the right way or neither of them are the wrong way of doing it maybe that you've got both pros and cons but I suppose just having the space to go that just to identify that's different isn't it that relationship yeah. between a mother and a son is presumably different between a father and a daughter um and what does that throw up what does that give give us, you know? Yeah, um, and what do we want to keep from that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh, we've become very reflective already. We're <laughs> only five, ten minutes in. <laughs> Blimey. So today, uh, the whole point about this spotlight on thing, right, is to sort of lift the curtain or lift the veil on the bits behind the scenes and just find a little bit more about the people and how you work and what's the process. Because it's something that certainly over the last year or so, because I suppose we've got time, people have been asking more about, well, how do you do that? How do you edit a Shakespeare play? Or, you know, how do you create that company feel? 
because when there's a real company ensemble feel, whoom, it all comes together. And what's the pros and cons and all of that sort of thing. And then people have asked about music and light. And, and the thing, of course, we always get asked about is acting and the actors and how do actors work in this ensemble thing, this stuff? How do you work with text and all of that sort of thing? But particularly, and it was really interesting thinking about you coming on today, is um, regendering of roles. And actually female artists or people who identify as uh, female playing roles traditionally written for men, which you've done a couple of times with us, right? So, so that, that's interesting. So why don't you kick us off and tell us about how you got into this biz called show? <laughs> oh, God. I mean, from, from a very early age, basically, I just was always pootling around doing acting in little kind of village drama groups and... Um, school plays and you know it's it's always been there and at university I stayed involved in it and and at that point of graduating from uni I thought well I, I can't I can't possibly do this do this for an actual job can I so I went elsewhere and then it just was sort of just calling to me <laughs> um and I tried to sort of scratch the itch by doing night classes and you know did a thing at Birkbeck and still I was like no I need to actually pursue this because it's it's just a passion it's something that I love um and and going to to drama school was just fantastic and just something that I think there's so much merit for anyone to do you know to to have that chance to sort of play and and stretch your imagination and use your body and use your voice like I want it to be more in mainstream education um, rather than something specifically for actors. Um, yeah, so it, it's sort of always been a part of me, I guess. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Just thinking about actually why why is it something that is only considered, well, if you, you know, I always remember this at GCSE drama. Well, are you going to be an actor? No, probably not. Well, why are you doing, you know, why yeah. are you doing, why do you want to do GCSE drama then? You know, and you sort of go, actually, is that not something that... Um, we could put into all subjects, all parts of the education system, play, social yeah. uh, interaction. It's going to be so interesting, isn't it? After lockdown, kids going back to school and trying to build, regain some of that social interaction stuff. You know, it's about us as humans, I suppose, not just a memory test of what we remember and we regurgitate an exam. Creating rounded people with souls. <laughs> exactly. And flexible people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. <laughs> Ho hopefully, we'll see how we go. Yeah, fingers crossed. And, and of course, then, um, so we've got the performance element of it, but also you've got lots of fingers in lots of different pies, haven't you? That so actually, your work spans not just the bit on stage, you know, with the writing, with directing, poetry. Is that was that always part of the whole spectrum as well? Was it just being involved in all of that? Um, I was a bit. I I think. Until drama school, really, I was a bit daunted by the other side. I have always done bits and bobs of writing, like bits of poetry kind of around the edges, but just sort of for myself. But it was only really at drama school that I was like, oh, <laughs> it's possible to do this too, isn't it? <laughs> um, I, and then sort of, in fact, I think it's actually since becoming a parent as well that I felt this impetus to sort of, write and share my voice to the mix um and probably with a bit of a feminist agenda to it as well you know like if you if you want to change something you need to kind of be there and be part of the conversation and 
um, I just think there's big sort of slices of life that aren't really given the the space and the the platform um, to talk about. So like, obviously this is personal to me, but like to be a parent, to be a mum is massive. And yet culturally it's sort of not really present. It's seen as this little subset niche thing that maybe other mums might be interested in. Whereas, you know, like the concept of falling in love, that's plastered over everything. We've got pop songs, we've got films that sort of show us what it is to be romantically in love. But we we don't really do the same thing for what it is to raise a child or not, not quite so much. So part of me thinks, well, that's it's a bit strange. It's a bit skewed. So I guess there's a motivation coming from there to just try and say, say my piece, <laughs> elbow my way in. Um, yeah. And why is that? Why, did you, why do you think that? I mean, gosh, this might be the million dollar question but why why do you think that is what's 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 happened over the time that we don't have stories about motherhood apart from i'm just it's interesting you know as soon as you're saying that i was thinking about classical plays and motherhood and straight, straight away i went to medea which might not be <laughs> the the best i don't know it depends on your view of medea really it's not i suppose it's not the best mother children's story <laughs> you know um but yeah, why? What do you do? You think you've got a handle or an idea of what that might be? What's that's all about? Um, I I guess the the realm of domesticity is probably seen as something smaller um, and less important than uh, political commentaries or you know uh, things that are, are much more in the public sphere. But actually we all have home lives and we all have family relationships and and often that sense of what is domestic is tied with what is female which is not necessarily the case but I think probably that's where it comes from yeah that's um, that's fascinating I'm just I, my head's buzzing now with all these sort of um mums in plays what big plays have we got that are mothers and actually is it you know straight away again in my head mother courage comes to to mind but is that a story about a mum and her children or actually is that the political stuff about the war and all the background there but but just going that's really interesting isn't it do we do we have that many plays about being a mum but and also how do you how do you make something interesting when a lot of it is kind of small and everyday and you know because you do have to put you have to make stories that are kind of enlivening and, and dramatic and all that kind of stuff so yeah it's one to mull over I'll keep you posted yeah, gosh, yeah. I'm just, <laughs> I just feel a, a season of motherhood coming on, <laughs> like the greatest classical mums ever, you know, kind Ooh. of season. Yeah. Okay, right. Thinking caps on, listeners. Send in <laughs> your suggestions for plays about mums. Let's see how we can, we, what we can create there. Okay, so we're gonna have a trip down memory lane now. This is the sort of, you know, the bit where in the Wizard of Oz it all goes black and white, and we sort of diddly 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 type thing. Um, so it all began, and I, I sort of was a bit surprised. Is, is it really it's something that Gavin and I talk about quite a lot? When you go, someone feels really formative to the company, you go, actually, you've done a bit with us, but not huge and huge amounts. And then I thought, mm. was it really the case that the first show you did with us was that bonkers rep of both Troilus and Cressida and Coralie? And it's like, what an introduction. What was all <laughs> <laughs> what on earth was all that about? Um, what do you remember of that time, that 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 our world of war, war rep? Oh, it was mad. It was sweaty. That's what I can remember. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, it was my it was my first interaction with Lazarus, so I didn't really have any sense of oh, you know, doing two shows in one night is going to be extreme. I was just like, okay, fine, this is what it is to do Lazarus. Um, but I just, oh, I've just got really fond memories of it actually. Um, that's that ensemble. That's what kept me coming back. Really, that sense of here we are. We are one team, and it's the story. It's not about those different characters. It's the story, or the stories. Um, so that I came away feeling very strongly was like, I I want to make work like this. Uh, what else can I remember? I can remember that they were just so different those two pieces and from even from how we made them in rehearsal so Coriolanus was so kind of stripped back and slick and LX tape and simple chairs and it all just seemed to fall I mean maybe it didn't behind the scenes but it just seemed to kind of fall into place quite in quite a straightforward way and the story was kind of clear and then <laughs> Troilus and Cressida was just, <laughs> it was just messy, wasn't it? And I'm noting that in a negative way. It was just harder to kind of pin it down. And I can remember, so we went down this whole line of like putting um, a wrapper, were we in a bunker or something like that? <laughs> and we went, through, I mean, we really thought about this and everyone had their bits of business and we started to kind of stage it. And I think it was... I think it was the Friday lunchtime of week two of rehearsals <laughs> when you were like, so I think I might just ditch that and do something completely different. Leave it with me for lunch. And then we came back after lunch and you introduced a completely different concept. And it was just, it made sense. And it felt like a relief. And like you'd have thought, oh, that would be panic stations to change something, you know, so far in rehearsals. But it just, oh yeah, it was like a, a relief and I remember just being excited specifically to work with you because of that because you were prepared to go like you know fuck it let's just <laughs> chuck that let's chuck that out and try something else you know well, that's the thing I've always found difficult about theatre where the set's already designed and you know if that's been built in a workshop you can't you couldn't change that you just have to go well that's it now we've just got to make it work and and of course on some levels you do just have to make things work but when it's actually a concept an idea that's working against the play and against the people you've got in the room then you sort of you know the thing that I think really actually dawned on me and it's a big learning curve really as a director I just thought they're all doing bollocks it's all bullshit actually because we, we're spending so much time creating this world of stuff to do why there's enough to do just say the words that's enough um and yes it was a lunchtime um and I'm pretty sure it was um Rachel Dingle, the designer, had come in and I and we'd I just this is just not it feels like we're sort of really beating this into a shape that's never gonna be. What's really going on here? And I suppose because I read it focused on the Trojans, they almost seem to be in this bunker blissfully unaware that the Greeks are above and about to blow them up, basically, which was all sort of based on the Trojan horse thing, right? You know, so a sense of um maybe naivety actually, innocence or naivety. And here are these. Trojans sort of blissfully unaware that what's happening on the outside world and of course then it gets destroyed at the end so that was quite a useful way of editing what is quite a tricky play actually you just go which well, just all the Trojan scenes I think we had one didn't we where Cressida goes to the Greek camp mm. uh, there was that bit but other than that um, it was this basically children's birthday party where 
just a lot of balloons and party rings i seem to remember <laughs> i remember yeah. that that lunchtime very vividly because we were all the creative team went round to the tesco's around the corner and got all of the paper plates all of the paper cups the party rings balloons and we just spent that that lunchtime blowing the balloons up so that you guys came in <laughs> back in and it was all there ready on the table <laughs> Yeah, that was quite mental, wasn't it, actually? And it is crazy to sort of do something like that. And actually, it's so funny because I'd be so much more frightened of doing that now. But it was quite a good testament of the, the, the majority of the company, if not everybody, sort of went, OK. <laughs> and I suppose when you're in the second week of rehearsal, you sort of go, oh, God, just, just OK, just give me a balloon and I'll just do the words, you know. But bearing in mind, this is a rehearsal process of three weeks, but with two plays. So our heads are already in two places. And that I, I share that that um, memory of Coralinus felt that it just slotted almost that actually as a company, we'd understood that. And it responded really well to the Tristan Bates of space as well with the breeze mm. blocks, the old pipe work. It's pretty ugly. It's pretty exposed. You know, it played to that concretey thing which um, I think then the the party kind of just go, right, we get it, long table, when you're in a senior here, when you're not over there, easy, easy concepts. But um, but yeah, really interesting how that first half was then, I used to call it the age of innocence and then experience, you know, the nine o'clock slot of Coralinus was this, now here's the experience where um, you're going to see what it's like when a country knows what it's like to be at war. Whereas the Trojans, bless them, didn't have a clue, but they knew how to throw a good party. <laughs> it was it was such a lovely way to um to start a show because we came on doing a conga for um the start of Troilus and so backstage you know we would be lining up hands on each other's waist the music would start we'd have our party hats on it was just just such a happy way you know there was no sort of earnest finding my moment or, or any of that stuff it was just like cool let's let's bring it um so it was really fun yeah I can hear the purists sort of shaking and spinning. What? <laughs> the, the conga and the Troilus and Cressida? Because, and also, you know, thinking, looking back on that, you sort of go, it's a, it's such a tricky play. Troilus and Cressida is a bit of a mess. I love the word messy. Like you say, it, the, the play's a bit of a mess, actually. And you sort of have to kind of feel, felt to me anyway, we had to wrestle and do something to it. Mm. Um, and go, actually, let's just put the spotlight on one aspect of it rather than this whole thing. Because it was a double bill. You know, we did Troyes and Crestor at 7.30 and Coralina's at 9. I mean, that was mad. Who's going to turn up at 9pm to see Coralina's? I mean, people did. But you kind of go, who thought that was a good idea? Absolutely crazy. What's it like then being in a rep that performs... Um, you know, I, I used to have a very... I mean, I still probably do have a very nostalgic view of rep. Um, and, you know, part of the dream is that one day we'd have our own building with a full time company. But actually, I'm not sure we would do a rep where you're doing two plays on the same night. <laughs> yeah, no, you might need a day off in between. But what's it like being in a rep and you're playing two characters with basically 20 minutes in between? Well, to be perfectly honest, it didn't feel like that. It just felt like two halves of performance. Um, so it didn't feel kind of doubly exhausting, but then I had I had quite small parts. So maybe, you know, for, for the people who had a lot more to kind of deliver, I guess, maybe it would have been more exhausting, but I honestly, it didn't feel such a big deal. It was just like, cool, you know, now we do the Troilus and Cressida bit and we have a quick, <laughs> quick turnaround, get into your soldier headspace and off you go. Uh, now it's Coriolanus. 
it was very it's so exciting and I, I certainly remember mm. audiences re- response so exciting to and of course it's this this intimate studio space you've left the pink and the colors and the balloons and 20 minutes you come back and go whoa something significant has changed the tone the atmosphere and that was of course everything that you you know it's essentially actors and lighting that's essentially the aesthetic the scenography is bodies and some light you know and hopefully the haze machine behaves itself um <laughs> but you know but but what a what a vast change in in atmosphere that when Coralina started there was a wow something significant has really changed and it's all in 20 minutes it's kind of bizarre really I just kind of look back and go how the hell did we do it and I also used to have a really lovely moment uh so I was pregnant for that run and there was a moment right at the start of Coriolanus when there were huge sound effects like big guns or drums or whatever it was and every time without fail my baby would kick inside when it heard those noises and it was just I was just starting to feel it kick but I knew and it was just such a nice moment I was like no one else knows that this is going on but there's this little thing inside going boom 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 I think there's a war out there (laughs) (laughs) please do something (laughs) an extra member of the company there an extra member of the company oh bless yeah I mean blind no wonder your kids are so imaginative and so creative you know (laughs) 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 you know they were having it in the womb from the start right you know the the, the theatricality of it all ensemble so this is something that's always um intriguing people ask you know how, how do that how do, how do you build uh an ensemble i think i think now my head is sort of gone it's about the ingredients you've got in the first place they've got to be right and then you put it into this mixing bowl that is a rehearsal room and and off you go but i wondered if, if there's anything any thoughts you'd had since or you know you remember that you're having during the pros and the cons of ensemble work uh what is it that you like about that um and 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 what's difficult about it are there any pros and cons um well there are definite pros i think uh, what I like about it is that it puts egos to one side as much as possible um, in the sense of um, in the sense that it doesn't really matter what role you have in the room. That's very quickly established that that's sort of irrelevant. The more important thing is what is our story that we're telling. Let's look at our text and all of us need to know our text inside out and all of us are in the space uh like exploring physicality say or learning a song or whatever it is you're not it's not about like um you know who's got the more experience or that kind of thing and it's very freeing as an actor to to know that and to feel that that is how the space is held uh because it it stops any sort of you know introspective or what about me or how's that coming across all that stuff because it's just like you know just shovel that stuff to the side let's get on with telling this story and thinking and sharing and it's it's a kind of democratic way of working that I find really satisfying you know and it's not just oh I need to know what my words mean but there's always someone scribbling a question on the wall or on a piece of paper um or (laughs) um 
you know someone else making an offer or so so that is really a satisfying way to work I suppose the obvious con to that is that people work at different paces and have different needs and if you work in an ensemble way you have to all sit with that and let someone else make their journey of discovery or you know that kind of stuff and so you can feel like oh if I'm struggling with something I might be letting the rest of the gang down or you know that kind of stuff you're there's that sense of group dynamic that I suppose could become a bit of a pressure but normally it's I find it a very supportive way of working yeah yeah I suppose if you're I guess the thing to kind of I don't maybe is the the goal is we're all in this together we're all um it will survive, it will flourish on us all working together, but it will also go down uh, if we don't all work together, you know, and that that can be quite, um, I don't know, interestingly, you know, actors have said to me before, it's quite, it can get quite frustrating because if there's someone in the company you feel is not giving their all or not completely on the same page, you feel like you're dragging them along but conversely, if everybody is on board with that and go, do you know what, I have to, I do have to leave something at the side and just listen. Um, then you feel like you're pushing up the hill completely together and actually in some ways becomes easier because we're all pushing the thing up the hill, not, you know, with a couple of people not quite sure or, you know. So there must be something quite vulnerable about that, I would imagine, you know, coming into a room where you've, you go, actually, I'm always in the room with 10 15 other people um and it's quite exposing here I'm now revealing my sort of process or here I am trying to work this out but I have to do that in front of people and I wondered whether that's something you've experienced in your time with us or other work where um you know that could be quite vulnerable quite scary or could it be quite illuminating and 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 maybe um uplifting the time that I found it scary was in the Tempest being Prospero and we did I think day one of rehearsals we just did a quick walk through you know we just got it up on its feet and, and went through the script and the kind of pressure that comes from having that big part and I was thinking oh and I felt so rusty and it was like you know that the only acting I'd done for the last oh, I can't remember you know years so I was feeling very inhibited and thinking oh god I've got to try and be really good <laughs> straight away because otherwise they'll think I'm rubbish and they'll be saying why is she can't was she even cast blah 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 you know all those kind of negative thoughts so that was when it was scary but once we've kind of got that and that had been done then you can just go back to the nice dynamic of getting to know each other and you know um and just discovering together but yeah I think probably right at the start is that kind of vulnerable scary moment but you have to just plunge in don't you because if you hold back then you kind of there's nowhere else to go you have to just sort of put yourself out there and and trust um trust that the others are going to sort of be with you and that's fascinating actually because you've you've been in that position where as you say with Troilus and Cressida and Coriolanus maybe slightly smaller roles are still on stage all the time altogether uh Henry V then being part of that company that sort of camaraderie and then all of a sudden with the Tempest you go well actually you know we often say there's no leads but actually prosper has got the bulk of the text and has the through line right so you know yeah. i wonder if there's anything you could say about the difference between being within the company and, and and as you say then oh actually everyone's watching to see who prospero is yeah i mean actually 
having been through the process, there was less of a difference than I imagined there would be just in those initial few days. But I think that's because I was bringing the emotional baggage of like, oh, gosh, the lead. Uh. But I, the experience felt the same because when in Troilus and Cresta, for example, I, I felt just as much in the room and OK, fine, my role would have been more active listening. But you have to kind of give to the people performing and rehearsing in that moment and that requires an energy you have to be listening you have to be responding to their offers because otherwise they're not getting any feedback from you so fine in Tempest you know maybe I was on my feet a bit more than some others but it's still that same sense of giving to the space so actually I didn't I didn't find it as different as I thought I might yeah it's it's fascinating because if you're working in a process that um it's it, I, I, by the nature of working ensemble, there are no leads. And you go, yeah, but I do have the most text, right? <laughs> so be that balance. But actually, how do you work then as a lead inside an ensemble, inside a company? But I again, I wonder whether there's something you're only as um, good as everyone else. You know, you're only as solid as everybody else. And, and that's it, really. You can't do your Prospero without everybody else doing what they need to do. Uh, and they can't do what they do without you doing your Prospero, right? So it's that. Exactly. Sort of the exchange. only difference is, you know, on the train journeys there and back, I just had a few more lines to try and cram in. But <laughs> in the space, it didn't feel that different, you know. And I wondered, I don't know, actually, I just remember in that rehearsal process, because you were dashing home um, to the kids, there was something about, I just, maybe this is something you, more you can talk about, actually, what's the difference between when you're acting and you're a mum? Um you know, so other actors might hang around afterwards and sort of do their hanging around stuff because they've not got anywhere vital to be. Whereas there's something wonderful about you go, we go, okay, let's finish there for the day. And you might come over and say, or well, any other notes or any other thoughts. But, and I go, no, no, we'll come back to that tomorrow. Well, this is what we'll look at tomorrow. And you go, okay, great, bag, gone. And there's this really wonderful sort of, actually, you get so much more out. Of, well, it felt to me anyway, you were getting so much more out of the rehearsal time because that was that time to do it. And then actually there comes a time where now I'm a mom. Bye, everyone. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if you, if there's any thoughts about that. Has there been any difference in your process as an actor because you've become a mom? I mean, I mean, part of my head goes, there's bound to be, right? And then a part of me goes, I don't know, because I'm not one. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, probably that about sometimes there are just fixed timings. So there's that level of needing to compartmentalise a bit. Um, I mean, there's just, I, do you know I'm not sure. I mean, I suppose there's more material to to draw on in terms of emotional experience. But then who's to say that being a mum gives you that more than other life experiences? <laughs> and if anything, I was probably the most keen for the Friday drinks. and <laughs> <laughs> wanting to stay till the end because it was just such a novelty. <laughs> Everyone else is like, I think I might just have one, you know, I'm a bit tired. And I'm like, come on, let's get a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the night off. <laughs> you don't understand how precious this is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and I wonder whether you know this is something else to think about. I wonder whether that filters into that role with Prospero being a mom with Miranda. Um, got, I mean, that relationship is well tempestuous. I suppose is the word I was trying to avoid, but um, you know, wow, that relationship and whether that's something you can draw on experiences as well. You know, you sort of go. Because, you know, sometimes we think as, as as storytellers, we go, we've got to relate it to my own situation. And actually, sometimes that's kind of impossible because they're not you. But I wonder whether there are things that you can draw on with with uh, Prospero and uh, Miranda's um, relationship. 
Are you a tyrant? Are you dictatory to your boys? <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to ask them. Um, <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I suppose in terms of um, being able to get my head around the stakes of it a bit, uh, and you know, I just. I can directly feel, you know, I can ask myself those questions of, you know, what would I do if I was in that situation, like having to travel with my child because that was the only thing that was be a survival or having to kind of make decisions on their behalf so that their life could go and be happy, even if it was a sort of a loss to me. Like there's some of the decisions that Prospero has to make at the end or the way I interpreted it. You know, I, I suppose there, there was something that I could identify with there. Um, and that sense of kind of moving on, you know, like it's the next generation's turn. Although in my own life, I'm not quite there yet because my kids are really little. So I would imagine probably I'm going to, you know, go down the line a bit and suddenly look at the Tempest and think, oh, that's what it's about. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't I think, quite get it. Well, we, I think we had that conversation shortly after, and you know, it's something we should yeah. come back to when we're both older. Because yeah. actually it's a play about saying goodbye and we're not ready to say goodbye yet. No, There's loads of life in our old bones. <laughs> and I'm ready actually, to that, go back out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 the, the, is it about settling your account? You know, it's about finding peace. It's uh, forgiveness. You know, and and sort of saying goodbye to something, letting something go. You know, which is paper. But I do, I do have quite immediate memories actually of watching. Um, because it's always quite difficult in a short run because you're so just sort of geared to getting the thing open. And then normally in the second week, I sort of, I'm just going to nip in and watch a bit at the back. So it's not sort of formal work. I'm just going to watch a bit. And that end moment where she was almost, I don't know, there was this, it's that weird antithesis between when you're smiling, but you're crying because it's emotional, but it's the right thing to do. And it was the moment really at the end when you saw her son being happy and finding peace in a partner and you sort of gosh yeah that's parenting isn't it putting everything even when even when some of the things you do are quite bad or wrong or difficult or you know but you're there's a sort of sacrifice I suppose and then when she said goodbye to all her stuff and I'm so anti-props I hate props but when she sort of you know got rid of the book and got rid of the cape and got rid of the the, the staff <laughs> just remembered that bloody pole <laughs> So for listeners who didn't see the production, of course, you can see production shots on the website, on the archive page, but we took out part of the orchestra pit at the Greenwich Theatre. And there was a wonderful moment where I think we probably only found this in tech, actually. I don't think this is something we particularly did in rehearsals. But no, when we had this pit, there was an idea of throwing or, or releasing them into the earth, into the volcanic ash or into the sea or just, just letting it, it go. And... Um, and it was a really beautiful moment, but <laughs> but we'd put a little crash mat so it didn't make a noise. But Misha was incredibly brilliant at always hitting the wall. <laughs> so you'd have this wonderfully beautiful moment and then you just hear a boom. <laughs> and I also remember, do you remember the paper in the previews? Oh, gosh. So <laughs> Go on. Tell us. Tell us. Yeah. So we, in a similar vein, there's this big pile of white a4 paper wasn't there that was the book that was the spells and the magic that kind of represented the power of prospero and we sort of were throwing that into the pit as well and then in previews you know you want to try a few things shake it up a bit and you said just for this one try just <laughs> casting it wide <laughs> like just shut that paper as far as it can go <laughs> and i did it you did it but you did, did do it, it. <laughs> 
and I chucked it so far that like a big pile of A4 paper just hit some poor sod over the head a couple of a couple of rows from the front and it was an impressive throw because that was a lot of paper but it did oh, all God. pretty much land lap end in that man's lap didn't it I mean there you go that's something to take home with you slightly oh, shattered my... the poignant moment yeah <laughs> Oh, it was fantastic. But yeah, that, that real wonderful, you know, and definitely I think it's one of those we put on the list and chalk it up and go, right, that's something for us to come back in 10, 20 years time and, and re just refocus that bit and go, yeah, what, what is it about that? Because I think it is about experience. It's about experience. And of course, we've got life experience, but maybe there's something about returning to that in the future going, okay, mm. what, what else can we find in that, which would be, which would be fabulous. The other bit I was intrigued about, and I've always fascinated this with actors, because we always run out of time in previews. And I really get an in tech, a tech in the theatre, which is partly one of my favourite bits, because we've got the lights going, we've got the haze going, we've got the sound around us. And you go, this is the exciting bit, but it's always the shortest period. And I always find at the end of a tech period I've not really been able to do anything I want to do because it's all been about the rest of the creative team which is totally right and that's not me moaning listeners like mm -hmm. um but it's, it's just oh god I'd love an extra session where we could just let's just breathe this thing in a bit um but anyway one thing I'm always interested and fascinated about is what it's like to be an actor in that sort of space so you've had the experience with us being in uh, the Tristan Bates which is that wonderfully intimate sort of powder keg but then the Greenwich and I wondered if you've got any thoughts or uh, rememberings of what that's like to transfer from a studio space, but then you're in somewhere like the Greenwich where you can, you know, have, well, way, way bigger to start with, but what, what what's that as an actor? How does that feel? Um, oh, just absolutely thrilling. Like you'd, you'd given us the heads up, you kept saying, you know, it's an unforgiving space, the Greenwich, it's huge. You're going to have to sort of bring your A game, bring that energy more than you think. And you could tell that we we're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine, you know, project, you know. <laughs> oh, he's going on about <laughs> <But> that then, <laughs> again <laughs> yeah exactly but then you get there and and it is and it's not um thankfully I didn't find it petrifying I found it just really exciting and you know we all went and kind of mooched around amongst the chairs and went right to the back of the auditorium so that you can really feel it in your body the the space that you've got to try and um get over to to connect with all of the members of the audience and um and it's simply a case of okay fine I think I've been giving it you know full energy in rehearsals but you're like oh no we need to go we need to go to the next gear now and it's just really satisfying like really using your voice you know using the stuff that you've trained for using your body and like feeling physically exhausted after performances like that's for me, what is exciting about theatre is that you're just giving, you know, um, and and to be able to make this huge story come to life on a huge stage in front of loads of people. It's just it's a gift. It was it was great. I find that that, um, you know, I, I personally love the Greenwich Auditorium. and I, But, you know, you've got to acknowledge its difficulties or its challenges as well. But there's something about and I think it was um, David Clayton, actually, at the lovely David Clayton, who said it's less about filling the space. It's more about fully inhabiting the space. I was like, oh, I like that that difference, actually. I like that tuning because, of course, one thing we do at the Greenwich, people who've seen our work there, is we take all the tabs out. And in fact, this uh, last year with Macbeth, we took the Priscillian Arch out. So it is just this complete expanse. But there's something wonderfully intimate 
because you're not that far away from the actor, but there's a huge epic expanse. And so rather than filling the space, I've just got to fill this thing. Actually, if I can inhabit every nook and corner, every creak and bit around the whole room, if I can inhabit it. And it's so blooming wonderful, Misha, because you're so generous as an actor, not only as a person, but in a rehearsal room for other people, but also generous in terms of then for audiences. You walk onto that space. And I always remember that storm scene. You're just walking down stage and just almost seeing you breathe into the whole space. Face. and everyone going we know who Prospero is and like yes you do here she is you know so there's that real sort of you know it's quite hard to describe but that it's it's how we respond to such a big epic um it feels a space of consequence stuff's gonna happen here that's yeah. the stuff that makes me excited and how and how amazing to be able to to do that to have you know in normal life I don't get the chance to be big and epic and sweep around. And I think there's probably this kind of wish fulfillment element of like, look at this. And, yeah. you know, you costume wise, you guys put me in this kind of huge, puffy sort of Elsa <laughs> meringue dress. And when I, when I saw it in the rehearsal, whenever I saw it, I can't even remember. Um, I was thinking, oh, no, that's going to that's going to be hard. That's going to get in the way because there's just so much material on that thing. But actually, in that huge space it was it was helpful because it made me have to do kind of <laughs> a huge turning circle and um you know people couldn't stand too close to me and I had to be large and expansive with my gestures like, you know otherwise I was going to trip on the thing and uh yeah so everything just has to be kind of dialed up a bit and it's fun to be in that world mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something, you know, of uh, the, the ever longing, wishful dream of having our own building with a permanent company, just a space that you could inhabit, you know, and it's got to have that, uh, you know, of course, there's financial stuff like, you know, a balance sheet of how can you actually make this stuff pay for itself, but also about impact, seeing two, three, maybe 400 people experience this thing together. The moment that uh, Ariel turns up, the moment Caliban comes to realizing the moment where Prospero is saying goodbye, you know, all these big sort of um, signposts, you just get, we're sharing in that collective experience, you know, it's just really profound. And of course you can have impact in studio theatres, but you're reaching sort of 70, 80, 90 people. But wow, there's something really tremendous, I think, about two or 300 people leaving, going, having experienced something together. Blimey, knowing you've had impact. That's that's quite I find that very emotional, actually, you just sort of go, you know, I used to be very snobby about whooping, <laughs> you know, when audience would whoop at the end of a show, you go, oh, stop it. <laughs> yeah. But actually, it was I think it was probably Lord of the Flies the first time when we had, you know, the, the thing was packed and people screaming and whooping. You went, do you know what? They deserve to whoop. If they want to whoop, they let them whoop. Why am I being snobby about it? Get over your bad self. Get out. You know, <laughs> I had to have that conversation with myself. But something wonderful about these these people, young people, old people, people who are familiar with theatre, people who aren't just ex wanting to express their involvement, their engagement, their participation with this thing. Really, really powerful. So well yeah, done exactly. you. <laughs> but also that but also that role that that audience is playing. Like I I don't know about you but I've watched a few bits of live theater, you know, on the internet during lockdown and my reflection on it really is that it's the audience that's missing mm. because you're sort of hadn't fully appreciated it. when I go to the theater as an audience member I'm I'm contributing to that piece in a way that I hadn't really appreciated before. And and I think that's what it is when you like at the Greenwich, you just feel like, oh, we've all made this together. All of you faces that are looking at, you know, towards us at the stage, but you're part of it. And I think that's 
that's part of that buzz, isn't it, that you feel when you go and see a show. You've you've done something, you've participated. It's not this passive role of just sitting in a seat and yeah, and e- even with um, even with naturalistic pieces, because I'm not really interested in naturalism at all. So, you know, there is no fourth wall to break. It doesn't exist. So especially with our sort of work where you really need reactions, responses, you want to see them laugh or hear yeah. them cry or you want to experience that. Um, but very, I mean, gosh, we've got so much to cover, but just just sort of briefly, Henry V. What do you remember of all that time? Because it sort of didn't, then didn't happen, and then didn't Oh, happen. I know. It was so sad. Oh, God, I loved that show. It was just really fun. And um, oh, what do I remember about it? It just, it, was a, it just felt a very positive experience. I think we were all quite um, excited. So it was the all-female Henry V. Um, so that it felt like we were doing something exciting. Uh, and I was I was sadly sort of looking forward to seeing what the audience response would be to it you know how it would feel to perform that and share that um yeah it was just just quite a good laugh I got to um one of my roles was Flewellyn who is you know the comedy character so that was just really nice love doing a bit of comedy so and fun trying to sort of you know not butcher a Welsh accent and and all that kind of stuff um and I can remember I suppose One of the main irritations was that we did the Dora, the Explorer Keepy Uppy thing that, you know, we do in all Lazarus shows. And you just infuriatingly said to us, oh, the all male cast of Blah Blah show. I can't even remember what it was. They did really well. And then you put the ball into the room and you could just see the heckles on all of us rising. So we're like, oh, my God, I've just done that. He's I thought just I was going to be that, hasn't it? And then annoyingly, we were a bit crap. And I was like, come <laughs> on, we've got to do this. So I'm a bit sad that we never quite, you know, <laughs> we never quite managed to beat Dora. The Dora the Explorer ball game. Yes, it's essentially a, a variation on a keepy-uppy game. But um, but blimey, it really does fuel the, the passion, you know. Um, yes, but it was a bit frustrating because it was meant to focus minds and bring it together, but actually just caused incredible hysteria. So it sort of <laughs> did the opposite effect. But yeah. Um, other other bits, because I, I, I'm i kind of fascinated by this. I don't, I don't know why it comes as a surprise. I think in modern world, we've got to be one thing. You're either an actor or you're a director. But you've done so much um, other than performing, like I've said at the beginning, about directing and writing and poetry. Some of your poetry is absolutely beautiful. Tell us a bit about more about that kind of work and the work that you've been doing with spoken word and, 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 and all that sort of writing you've been doing. Um, I guess it's almost just... The, one of the only things that's been achievable I've, I've realized since having kids you know your time just disappears and then I I suddenly came to the realization well I've just got to do what I can with what I have and I can grab 10 minutes when there's a lull and everyone's playing and I can kind of bash out a poem and and that's kind of where it came from and it was more that I was like this is for me I'm doing this as a bit of self-care um and just very satisfying and I've tried to my sort of motivation for the last year was to just try and create without any agenda you know not for sharing necessarily or for aiming to get anywhere but just to do and um and that's where the poetry came from and so and then I started to share it uh in some kind of local circles here and um yeah it just it's just there I'm not really doing it for any purpose other than to keep expressing and to keep experimenting and it's a short form that I can I can squeeze around the edges of life so I think that's where it's come from 
it feels to me reading some of your work. I mean, of course, it's deeply personal, but reading and, and there's there's some there's some on the in, on the internet. Uh, there's some recordings of you reading your work, mm. and 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 it's it's um it's so strange. Well, is it strange? Maybe it's not strange, but I just felt wow, I'm seeing into a world that. I think I know this person relatively well, but wow, it's like a window to the soul type stuff. And it feels very cathartic or very um, meditative, you know. Yeah, a, a I think process. it's exactly that. Yeah, and it's it's just that kind of release. I find it very satisfying to just, you know, there's no preparation, there's no character, there's just, it just comes from within you. And, you know, it's a kind of instinctive splurge and then probably try and edit it a little bit. But <laughs> um, <laughs> that's just that's a really nice place to be in, you know, and I'm yeah. trying I'm trying to be more vulnerable in my work in general. I think the poetry is sort of helping me try and get there. Yeah. Yeah, it's be there's some be beautiful stuff and you kind of oh, it just takes you, um, you know, when you you know someone in a certain way, I guess. So we've always had the actor-director relationship type stuff. And you go, my gosh, yeah. this person's really talented beyond the talent that I already know. This is incredible. Aww, you know, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I had a good, I mean, it was really emotional because there's bits where you sort of sit and read or you listen and you don't quite know why you feel emotional, but you feel emotional. And presumably that's the words. And, you know, of course, that's the words and, and what's coming out. But it's really, really profound. And I, I just thought, God, this must be very vulnerable to share this. And then that's what made me think, well, of course, rehearsal rooms are very vulnerable first previews are very vulnerable we do put ourselves up for a right raw bashing don't we sometimes I mean god why do we do it what's that all about we're mad aren't we really I suppose because <laughs> it's good it's how we should all be but yeah mm, life gets in the way maybe it shouldn't be mad maybe it should be we should all be far more yeah. uh open to that um be healthier, be wouldn't it? yeah tell us about theatre management <laughs> and your time as theatre leadership type stuff because because there's this oh, whole God. massive campaign with Sutton Theatres wasn't it? I was fast absolutely fascinated about it because we didn't talk about this at the time but I saw in the stage your name and I went what she she's doing something else again what's <laughs> happening here um and of course I keep talking about running a building and an organization slash company and all that sort of stuff um so so fascinated about your time as uh, on the I saw sort of say it's the dark side but you know the 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 yeah. managementy stuff tell us about your time and experiences um I mean I think I I think it, it was just like I thought I was in a Hollywood movie basically so I was heavily pregnant and I'd sort of was winding up you know work and projects and stuff and then saw this thing in my local paper about oh the two local theatres near where I lived in South London were which were council run were being put up for tender and I was like well that can't happen they'll be turned into car parks you know like let me just have a go and see what happens and contacted um someone I knew who I'd sort of chatted to about you know running buildings in the past in the real like pipe dream type chats and he was like oh come on let's try and do something so we put a we put a bid in um and then we sort of somehow managed to get through all these stages of the process and suddenly there we were I mean we put a lot of work into it but we were handed the keys to the theatres and and it was just like some strange dream. And I just had a baby, my first baby. And, you know, life was, I think I was just trying to be like a superwoman, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yes, so we did take over these theatres. And obviously it was a huge job. And, 
kind of in retrospect completely unachievable to do what we you know we were trying to do it on a startup budget and these were massive buildings in huge need of repair but it I did learn a lot along the way so um I learned the appetite that that the local area had for keeping them going there was a there was a goodwill you know I was, I was speaking to loads of the local schools and you know all of them were saying yes please like make this work we're desperate to have like a, a kind of cultural hub and you start doing those kind of brainstorming things of what is what is a building above and beyond just the shows and there's just so many ideas once you start thinking about it of you know this is just a place for connection and for all these different groups of people that live alongside each other but perhaps don't interact in the way that they could um something that's a bit like a library but not a library you know that what what is that um but unfortunately you know money was the limiting factor and my sanity was the limiting factor I you know I couldn't take that on and be a be a mum to a newborn so I had to pull away from it um it taught me that there's so so much that I don't want to get involved with in running a building like you know making sure that the loo paper is there and (laughs) staff rotors for the bar and all that kind of stuff I very quickly realized like oh this isn't very glamorous um and just how many people it takes to maintain something like that above and beyond any kind of artistic decision making and and activity so yeah it was it was an incredible reality check um of of just how many people it takes collaboratively to make something like this survive and also how much people want it but the flip side how expensive that kind of thing is and how much time it takes to to really get that off the ground so I don't think I don't think it would be for me again I don't think I'd want to run a building again but I think I have an appreciation for the people that do um and and also a sense of there is there is a need for some bricks and mortar creative spaces amongst us in our daily lives and like what could that be if it's not an expensive theatre what what is that you know is there a cheaper model or a, a more flexible model that we can come up with somehow so I, I kind of think about it a bit in you know in lockdown and with the arts industry now facing all the challenges that it does you know it's it's time for us to scratch our heads and and try and think of is there an alternative or you know can we join forces with other bits of sort of communal living I don't know I don't have the answers but I think there's there is a lot to be said about the the bricks and mortar and and, you know lots of things have been talked over the the lockdown period of um buildings might have been closed but actually artists still are working artists are still trying to be creative and some Mm. you know depending on what your level of success is or what you how you value success people are being very successful at it so actually you know things have still been going on the whole thing hasn't closed and there is an interesting thing about an obsession with bricks and mortar. I think for me, it's always been about having a space, um, something physical that you then can invest in. And, and actually, it did, it did change quite a bit for us when we moved to Greenwich and started the residency, having somewhere to show people that, uh, you know, so you could, for example, talk to an actor about a, a, a play or a role, or, you know, um, having a building to take them to and say, this is where we'll play just made that a bit more tangible, a bit more visceral maybe. Um, but also for people supporters, they can see where their money is supporting. And of course we, you know, we weren't, we're not running the building, we're a residence inside it, but you know, just seeing, oh, I can see what I'm investing in now. Whereas before maybe I was supporting, but you know, a production comes and a production goes. 
and then it's gone and some nice yeah. production shots and there might be an archive recording but that's that's it it's gone so it's kind of thinking about well what what are you i suppose you're investing in us as a company and our growth and you know us as people but um there is something about buildings that I don't know, potentially we have a, a link to, at least you can see it, at least you can touch it, you can open that door. You know, you talk about loo rolls, I can actually sit on a loo that I've invested in, or, you know, it sounds <laughs> tough. And but... also the, the the layers of memories of shows on top of each other that have all happened in that same space, that mm. creates something kind of powerful, doesn't it? Yeah. It's not, Having it's not a home, fluidly. Boom. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's home. And, and I think that's the thing, you know, as freelancers or as artists, they're so little solidness I mean that's a terrible sentence but you know it, it's so uh fluid and there's so on un many unknowns and and maybe that's something about when I when our thoughts are about a building or an organization or a company you know, it gives artists somewhere to go to mm. it gives somewhere for the community to come inside of it gives us a space to go this is at least there's one thing that's solid in this whole mix you know with we at least we know where we are um pros and cons right but um yeah Great. Now over to the moment of truth. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. It's <laughs> over to Gavin for the 60 second challenge. Hello, Misha. Hello. Are Hi. you ready? I'm ready. Yeah. Um, before we began recording today, you told us a little anecdote about six, listening to 60 seconds um, <laughs> and your son walking in. Can you tell us, a, tell us that story? <laughs> yeah. So my three-year-old, I was, I was listening to um, Bobby's a podcast and my three-year-old wandered into the kitchen just at this bit um where you'd said oh you know well done you got 13 and he had no idea what this thing was about but he went 13 that is amazing <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing <laughs> 13 was amazing 13 was up until recently the highest score so bobby was at the top of the leaderboard but unfortunately he was uh scuttled and we have someone else at the top of the leaderboard with 14. 14 is now the number oh, this, to beat, Misha. This is getting hard, isn't it? Okay, here we go. <laughs> I'll, I'll, try and, I'll try and ask my questions as quickly as possible. But yeah, if you've, as you've listened to it before, you know that the rules are simple. Um, I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions. You can ask them as, uh, ask, answer them as fast as you can, and we'll um, add up your score and see how many you answered in 60 seconds. Uh, as always, we have Ricky ready on the air horn of dreams. Can we hear oh that? Oh my God, please? look at that thing. <laughs> She's referring to the air horn. <laughs> Just for our listeners, Misha, can you describe the air horn for us? Hold it up again. Oh, wow. It's okay. So it's taking up almost the entire screen and it's got this huge big pump and this big red nozzle. I mean, it's horrific. What is that thing? <laughs> what my ex said. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> So you'll hear that when we're at the end of the 60 seconds, Misha, okay? Okay. <laughs> um, so Misha, are you ready? Yeah. Ricky, are you ready? <laughs> 60 seconds on the clock, here we go. Misha, tea or coffee? Coffee. If you didn't have to sleep, what would you do with your extra time? Dance. 
What's your favourite word? Plinth. What are you most afraid of? Death. What job would you be terrible at? Teacher. What's your most used emoji? I don't use them. Cake or biscuit? Cake. If past lives were real, what was yours? Oh, some kind of wild woman in the woods. What? What's the first <laughs> theatre you saw? Um, Panto, Chippy Norton. Uh, where is your happy place? Um, with my family. What's the first career you dreamed of as having as a kid? Flamenco dancer. If you could change your name, what would it be? Oh, I'd keep it. If you had to eat one thing for every meal going forward, what would it be? Marmite. What's your party trick? Uh, oh, the cornflake game. Movies or theatre? Theatre. Wow. <laughs> Wow. wow. While, wow, while wow. Gavin's doing the adding up, what's the cornflake game? Oh, you know, so you have a cornflake box hmm. and then it gets put on the floor and you have to pick it up with your teeth without hmm. touching the floor with your hands or your knees or anything. And then gradually, when everyone's sort of done that, then you rip off a bit so it gets lower and lower. Why? Well, just because it's a game. It's fun, Ricky. You know, people oh. have fun sometimes, you know. <laughs> well, I, I read John Webster for my fun. <laughs> just try it. Try it for yourself. Okay, I'll, I'll, go, and get a, I'll go and get a box of cornflakes. Okay. <laughs> Other brands are available. Gavin. So, Misha, Misha, at the time of recording, um, yeah. Alice Emery was at the top of the leaderboard with 14. What do you think okay. your score was? How many do you think you answered? About that, 13, 13, 14? 13, 13, 14. Well, I think you're wrong. You got 15. (gasps) 15. The competition continues. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) You are now the the bad Dora. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We want to, we, when I can't wait to hear Emil hearing the podcast. (laughs) <laughs> and knowing I'll let that you know his, what he says. His mom got fifteen. That's fantastic news. That's good. That's brilliant. Well done, Misha. Thanks. Well, our time is up, but thank you so much, Misha, for taking time out and having a chat and joining us today. It's been brilliant. Lovely going down trip down memory lane and seeing you in bright, sunny Southwest. So thank you so much. Oh, it's been lovely. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. We're gonna have to do it in person next time with a glass of yes, wine. Please. Um, <laughs> bottle, bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks to Misha and thank you uh, all for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another Spotlight On podcast. Until then, find out how you can get creative and get involved with our year of exploration by checking out our Facebook page, our Twitter profile at Lazarus Theatre, and there's bits and bobs on our Instagram at Lazarus Theatre also. All the details can be found on our website, www.lazarustheatre.com. I've been Ricky Dukes. And I've been Gavin harrington Odedra. And until next time, stay safe and stay well. Bye. Lazarus Theatre Company is a not-for-profit organisation that relies on the generous support of our friends, angels and principal supporters. If you wish to support this podcast or any of the work Lazarus Theatre Company is doing, you can visit the Lazarus Supporters page on our website, lazarustheatre.com forward slash Lazarus hyphen supporters or you can send any amount to paypal.me forward slash Lazarus Theatre every bit counts you have been listening to the Spotlight On podcast hosted by Ricky Dukes and Gavin Harrington Odedra produced by Lazarus Theatre Company 
The music you've been listening to is composed by Bobby Locke and is from our 2016-2017 production of the Caucasian Chalk Circle by Bert Albrecht. Queen. Today I am glorious, queen of the pavement. My large with life appearance is magnetic in the crowds. I turn heads and trigger smiles, cross roads where and when I want to, and everyone gives way. Oh yes, everyone gives way. Women younger, women older give me grins of camaraderie. I am life, this is life. We can breathe away our boundaries. Rolling round the streets like a giant pea, I don't have a bump, my bump wears me. I thrill at the trill of you birds up above. I bestow my smiles upon the people below. I am rich with humanity, brimful of love. My body will decide on which path I will go. I radiate up Longbrook, climbing high to Pennsylvania, and it blazes with a vastness this cerulean sky. Quiet air, leaning pine, and a pop of fresh mimosa. Now my home is getting closer as I rise along the hill. Yesterday was lethargy, nerves, gripes and restless energy, but today, Sylvia, I too am as slow as the world. Like a daffodil unfurled, I do not think, I just am. This is my kingdom, all are welcome. This day, today, is mine. <laughs>